The hitless wonders turned the trick back in 1906. Shoeless Joe, please say that it ain't so. Comiskey still was there, but the teams were only fair. Applin came, aches and pains, he fouled off ten or so. Falcon Baseball, Benura and Big Ed, Sox Baseball, Colin Shaw and Ted, Cuccinello, Jimmy Dykes, and Nick Altrock. Cast Michael, Sewell, and Haas Talking baseball The South Side and the Sox yeah, it's Terry Cashman, one of his 40 versions of Talkin' Baseball, 1981 on Life Song, which is his own label with Tommy West. No chart action, but, boy, huge among baseball fans. And uh, some night we'll uh, talk about Terry, who actually was a baseball player, yeah, for the uh, for the Tigers, a minor league pitcher, and uh, was singing doo-wop simultaneously in around 1960, said, you know, music's worth that, and so it was. So I want you to meet Ron Flatter. Ron is, well, we've been close since it was my lucky day when he had to be in Austin for non-radio reasons. And I got him as a producer. And I just I couldn't believe it because the job was so much less than he was so very capable of doing. But, hey, location is everything, right? Ron is all about radio, even more about sports. Did sports talk all over the place, including ESPN and Sports 927 in Melbourne, Australia. Did national news for Fox, CBS, other networks. And if it's a major sporting event, He's been covering it from the Kentucky Derby to the Olympics, and now he works for VEASAN in Las Vegas, Brent Musburger Sports Betting Network. And when I want to know anything about sports, he's my go-to person. So, Ron, welcome. Yeah, it just means, Raleigh, that I can type the sports issues into Google a lot faster than others. <laughs> Isn't that the truth these days? But no, no, when the, when the posers try it, uh, you usually trip them up pretty well. Mm, you know, with, uh, you and I are of a like mind in some respects on this, that when you and I are referring to our memory, the ago stuff is a lot better than the recent stuff. <laughs> and the long-distance memory is a lot easier than the short-term memory. Oh, isn't that so, the truth? Yeah, yeah. So you could trip me up on something like, you know, will it be Nick Foles or Mitch Trubisky who will be quarterback in the Bears? And then you'll ask me, okay, well, then who's, you know, who's going to be starting on the offensive line? You'll trip me up, believe me. But beyond that, I, I think I can fake it a little bit. Oh, I know you can. And, you know, it was 99 years ago right now. Chicago was in the midst of the infamous Black Sox trial. And I won't ask you if you remember it. Obviously, you don't. But I, I come to find out that hist- history-wise, you're a real historian on this trial. Yes. Uh, by the way, uh, just I, I've got to tell something to John, who's in the back. Mix minus. Uh, so anyway, uh, the the trial that you're talking about, of course, was the Black Sox trial and the, the infamous eight-man-out story and everything that went along with that. But one of the things that happened when I first went to the Baseball Hall of Fame more than 20 years ago with a friend uh, up in Cooperstown, New York, we went when I was living in Bristol, Connecticut, and working for ESPN at the time. So I made the, the road trip, and we spent the weekend there. And, and and because I was working at ESPN, I got a media in to get some of the insider access to the Hall of Fame. And part of that was to go into the library. And the guy who was giving me the tour said, "Would what would you like to dive into a little bit that maybe you've always wanted to? And I said, well, the Black Sox scandal has always fascinated me. And he goes in and digs out these big files of collections of newspaper clips to document 
documents to everything that you could imagine on the Black Sox of 1919. And so he said, you know, put on these white gloves. You and your friend can go over this. And I spent the day doing that in the, in the bowels of the Hall of Fame Museum in Cooperstown. And so I've had a fascination with this to the point where Raleigh, when I was working at ESPN Radio, I even proposed maybe that we do a one-hour old-time radio drama reenacting the Black Sox story. It never came to bear fruit, but eventually ESPN did do, I think it was a, uh, a live version, or it might have been uh, created where they use modern-day lawyers to retry the case many, many years later. And so I'm not the only one fascinated by this. Well, what's most interesting to me is that uh, on, on a casual glance, you say, oh, well, it was just a cheating scandal. But turned out, and of course, there's the mob in it, which always makes it juicy, and Arnold Rothstein and all that. But uh, turns out, from what I understand, that at the last minute, they decided they weren't going to go through. So explain what it was and what happened. Okay, so it was the World Series of 1919 for the uninitiated, and the Cincinnati Reds were playing the Chicago White Sox. Charles Comiskey owned the White Sox, and he was a tightwad when it came to paying his players' salaries. And this was a team that didn't get along terribly well with one another. So you had a lot of locker room lawyers involved on this team. Gamblers got at them. And this was at a time, remember, I mean, we're talking at the time, let's paint the picture of what was going on in America. World War I has ended. The prohibition's about to begin. So there's a certain amount of a feeling of lawlessness going on in society among those who were in position to empower the nation to ban alcohol. Well, another thing, too, that was going on was gambling, which was largely illegal. And by the way, Nevada hadn't even begun gambling yet by that point. It didn't really come in for another few years after that. And, of course, you were coming off of a pandemic. Oh, my goodness, what could possibly be, how could we possibly relate to that? So all these things were going on at the same time. Gamblers got at... And you mentioned Rothstein. He was the principal figure among the gamblers who got to the players and said, listen, we know your boss is a tightwad. You want to make a little money on the side, we'll pay you ten grand each if you'll throw the World Series. And they were approached with about four or five games left in the regular season, and it was apparent that the White Sox were going to win the American League Championship. Remember, back then there were no playoffs. You win your league, you were in the World Series. So they were approached, and eight players, the so-called eight men out, agreed to take the payment of $10,000 each to throw the World Series. Most of the starters and some key players who were not starters, including pitchers. The key guy in all this was a guy named Chick Gandil. He was the first baseman for the White Sox and probably the biggest locker room lawyer on the team. He was a difficult guy to get along with, but he was a guy you had to at least kiss his ring if you were going to go ahead and function in that locker room. And so Chick Gand organized this and made sure that he was the man who communicated with the gamblers as the World Series was getting set to begin. But as the World Series was about to, there were a lot of rumors that the World Series was going to be rigged to the extent the players were going out to dinner and were even being asked about it publicly in restaurants and bars and what have you. On the eve of the World Series, the players got together and decided, we're not going to throw the World Series now. We don't really want to do that. And there is a question of whether they decided en masse before Game 1 or after Game 1. But if you scratch beneath the 
conventional wisdom of history, you find that the players to a man decided, no, we're not going to throw the World Series. We're going to try hard to win it. As it, and they were going to keep the money from the gamblers. <laughs> well, as fate would have it, they lost the World Series in eight games. Back then, it was a best five of nine as opposed to four of seven as it is now. And the way it was supposed to work with the gamblers was that the White Sox were supposed to win game one and throw the series after that because once they won game one, the Cincinnati Reds would then be bigger underdogs if you bet into the World Series at that point. It's no different now as it was then. So they were supposed to do that, except the White Sox actually wound up uh, losing the game 9-1. to one. So <laughs> the odds didn't move, actually move the other direction. And so as it turned, as you go through and look at the statistics on the games, most of the players who were supposedly on the take pretty much accomplished what you would have expected of them based on their regular season performances. The most noteworthy player who glares in terms of his inability to measure up to his normal standards was the pitcher Eddie Seacott, who was knocked around pretty badly in two of the games, including game one. And everybody points and says, well, he was the one. The reason that we know a lot about this is because Chick Gandel in 1956 did an exhaustive interview with this brand-new magazine, this two-year-old magazine called Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. And Melvin Derslake did a very extensive interview. You can still find it now online. Again, go to Google and find out more. And by that point, Gandel was out of baseball. The last major league game he played was the eighth game of the 1919 World Series. He was in a contract holdout with Charles Comiskey in 1920. He decided, screw you, Chuck, and he went off to California to play semi-pro baseball, and then eventually become a career plumber, which last time I checked, they get paid rather well. <laughs> and so he wound up in some obscurity, and as players, one by one, that trial you were talking about, their confessions uh, apparently wound up in the hands of one Arnold Rothstein and were somehow lost, and so they were all acquitted for a lack of evidence but then the brand-new commissioner of baseball, a position that had been created largely out of the outgrowth of the, the gambling scandal here, uh, one Kennesaw Mountain Landis banned all those players for life. And to this day, none of them is even able to uh, be voted on for the Hall of Fame. That, there is, now you know oh, the rest oh. of the story. Well, m most people, of course, think of Shoeless Joe uh, when it comes mm -hmm. to this scandal. And uh, from what I understand, he was he was not a ringleader. Some accounts uh, mm -hmm. actually dispute his involvement, but you looked at it exhaustively. Was he involved? Uh, to the extent that uh, well, all the players, there's no doubt that all eight players were approached either directly or indirectly by gamblers and had agreed to throw the World Series. That fact is not in dispute. Chick Gandel said as much in his interview with Melvin Derslake. What's in dispute to this day is whether they actually threw the World Series. And it is entirely possible, probable, that the story that Gandel told Derslag in 1956 bears fruit because these were guys who were not terribly well-educated by and large, and they could easily be swayed and they could easily be scared. Uh, Shoeless Joe is, by reputation, was illiterate. Right. And so he went along with the flow. And the flow was to say, you know something, this is, it's getting a little too hot in the room. Let's, let's back off and not throw the World Series. But there's no question, Shoeless Joe is one of the eight. And if you get right back down to it, 
I think the debate is most salient now is not so much whether they threw the World Series, and in my belief they did not, they just lost it on merit, but whether they were consorting with gamblers and whether that by itself was worthy of a lifetime ban from baseball. And for that, I think you can actually have a reasonable argument on either side of that. Yeah. Now, I understand that Buck Weaver was the only player to be involved who didn't receive any money. What was wrong with Buck? I mean, <laughs> well, actually, that again goes to the, the, the question of uh, where money went. There was one point that some money was supposed to be left under a pillow in one of the players' rooms, and then that money disappeared. So even that is subject to debate, whether players received the money they were supposed to get or not. Uh, the, in fact, you read that interview again. I'm going back to uh, yeah. the interview that Gandil did with Derslag, and he would tell you that a lot of guys weren't receiving the money. So there's a lot of these stories, Raleigh, that have become folkloric, and, and they've become, for lack of a better term, wives' tales. Uh, but even to this day, I mean, we're now, uh, we are now 101 years removed from that World Series and 99 years removed from the trial. And there's still a lot we don't know, despite all the research that's gone into this. And it, again, it goes back to go to the trial, go to the criminal trial that had gone on. Why were these players all acquitted was the lack of evidence. And the lack right. of evidence reputedly is because Arnold Rothstein did away with it. But if we're to not believe everything about what we have been led to believe over the years about, you know, uh, say it ain't so Joe and uh, and all these things. Well, why would we necessarily believe the wide tales about Arnold Rothstein, too? So it, it does just get more muddled the more you pull on this thread. The trial, as they're saying, 99 years ago, right now, they were in the thick of this trial. And, of course, here they are all acquitted. What was the fan reaction to that? Um parochial okay <laughs> if you could you you could imagine that in chicago it was like well see we told you these guys were all in the up and up say it ain't so joe that kind of a thing okay. all right but around the country it's much the same as you would have now where for instance let me give you an example from the team of my youth the san francisco giants Barry Bonds played for the Giants and it seemed he could do no wrong when he was in San Francisco and he was constantly cheered and any accusation that he used steroids was debunked there, at least amongst the fans, but around the rest of the country, Barry Bonds was a cheater. In my mind, he was a cheater as well. But by and large, you go to uh, what is now known as Oracle Park in San Francisco, the man can do no wrong. So uh, it, it is really no different when you speak of the White Sox of 1919, the Black Sox, yeah. that in on the south side of Chicago, they were fine. Now, on the north side, I would imagine yeah. Cubs fans were probably, uh, you know, feeling a little bit differently. Yeah, but back shocked. then, uh, it was interesting, too. Both of these teams were pretty dominant for that time. The Cubs had come off of uh, their World Series triumph not that long before. It was barely a decade before that they had won their last World Series. And so these two teams were contenders. And let's not also forget the uh, Chicago Whales, who were playing at Wiegman Park. You ever heard of Wiegman Park? Yes. You now know it as Wrigley Field. It was yes. actually built for the Federal League team that was the upstart because baseball was popular enough that it could support three leagues back then. Uh, the Federal League didn't last forever, but it still is the reason that we have Wrigley Field. Wow. Now, of course, then the upshot was Landis, the commissioner, banning them mm -hmm. for life. What kind of reaction did that get from the fans? 
Same thing, much the same. I okay. think uh, around the country, remember you had that wave that I discussed already of mm. wanting to get a hold of itself, the country was. You know, let's get a hold of drinking and let's get a hold of drunkenness and let's get a hold of gambling. Let's get a hold of the vices for crying out mm. loud. There was a Puritan wave that was going through the country at that point. So the reaction was, ah, see, you know, ill-gotten gain, I'll show you this is what happens. And, and at the time, not to revise history, someone who was caught gambling and potentially just the specter of rigging a game was seen as much more of a heinous crime then than it is now, as much as you would think yeah. it would be now, especially now that gambling, sports gambling, is making its entry across the country in a growing number of states, of course, with Illinois and Indiana being among them. As that happens, people want games to be on the up and up. But I think people are far more cynical now than they were then. There was an innocence that had to be protected, after all, 100 years ago. So it was the finger-wagging, we you don't do anything like this, crime doesn't pay sort of a feeling (laughs) that would have pervaded the country back then, especially as the media... Look, radio hadn't really, well, hadn't. and The commercial radio had not begun for yet another no. year after the actual World Series. And so it was newspapers and newsreels that there were even fundamental versions of those for the silent movies. The newspapers were pretty much the one way you got your news, and newspapers were not that plentiful in terms of how many you were getting on your front porch. There may have been a number of them, but you weren't subscribing to every single one of them coming to your home every day. So I I suppose it was also the influence of whatever paper you read. But uh, for a great many of them, it was, you know, gambling is a very sinful thing to do. (laughs) If they only knew. I'm talking with Ron Flatter, who works for VEASAN these days, but has virtually worked for pretty much everybody sports-related you can imagine. If you've got any questions, and we are going to talk about baseball, not 99 years ago, but coming up later this month, by all means, call us. 888-876-5593-8888-R-O-L-L-Y-E. I'm Raleigh James. This is WGN Radio. That's the unmistakable sound of the Intruders. That was the follow-up to their biggest record, Cowboys to Girls, in 1968. Did get to number four on the R&B charts, 26 Pop. When Gamble and Huff decided they were going to go it alone, leaving Cameo Parkway and Jerry Ross, it was the Intruders that they pinned their hopes on, and boy, did that pay off. It was the strength of the Intruders that led Columbia Records to agree to bankroll Philadelphia International. So the Intruders were the original sound of Philadelphia, and boy, were they distinctive. Little Sonny was the lead, and of course, they didn't rise to the level of fame that uh, some of the other Philly groups did, and sadly, Little Sonny killed himself in 1995, and Philly jumped to his death 
Smith from Philadelphia's Strawberry Mansion, 54 years old. No giant hits, but some great songs. And uh, that was one of them. Don't ever hear that much anymore, but love is like a baseball game. And we're talking with Ron Flatter, who knows all baseball and much more. We'll, we'll get into Arlington Park as well. But uh, so we've all seen the announcements, Ron. Baseball is coming back next week. How exactly is this going to work? Uh, I'm a little eager to see that myself, and maybe anxious is more the word. Uh, home ballparks, they'll be devoid of fans. They're hoping to bring back fans in fits and starts going forward, but Major League Baseball did have a mass test of its players for the coronavirus and reported back that it had its number of players test positive, but it was a small percentage, I think under 5%. I, I may be wrong on the exact number. So they're emboldened by being able to go forward there. I think the plus for baseball being scattered around the country is something that I'm seeing in Australia. And you're like, wait, baseball in Australia? What do they have to do with each other? The Australian Football League and the National Rugby League down there, full contact sports, they've been able to resume and keep going, even with the percolation of the coronavirus in Melbourne, where I used to live. And so they've been able to ship teams out of that hub to other hubs around Australia, Sydney, Perth, Adelaide, and Brisbane, and continue playing. Well, baseball can do the same thing, and we've just seen how in California there's been a virtual shutdown of all public activity again, certainly with restaurants and bars by the governor there. So is that going to translate into sports as they try to resume at the uh, five stadiums for baseball around California? If they had to ship out all of a sudden and take their act on the road, well, there's the vehicle to do that. So I think they've got a little better fail-safe. I'm just not convinced that they would be able to implement that fail-safe because the owners and players just don't get along. They had to go screaming and kicking into the agreement that would have them play a 60-game regular season. That is going to begin here late this month. Uh, So that said, it'll be a sprint to the finish line. Millennials who are easily uh, distracted by anything that lasts much longer than a heartbeat might be uh, heartened by the fact that the season will be done very quickly, almost as uh, as it starts, and they don't have to feel like this is a marathon. It will be relatively a sprint, but 60 games per team, and uh, that's where it lies right now. It's interesting. Financially, the last I heard was that the players were holding out for their full salaries. Did they get them? On a prorated basis, and I, I don't know what the exact number wound up being. Okay. Uh, the economics of these things, I'm not plugged in on. I, I'll have to see how fast I can type in my Google right, machine yeah, on right. that. There you go. But in that, no, I, I, it's, can I be honest, really frank with you about this? I became so weary of all the negotiations over dollars, and I know I'm like every fan out there who was just like, get on with it. It just felt so much like, 1981 again, and uh, you know the night. Every time we've had a strike in baseball, 1994, which wiped out the whole season, and I felt like you know I don't need to hear these explanations and excuses and even the arguments all over again. I've been there and done that, so I was just saying, let me know when the race is over with. Tell me the results, and then let's get to playing the game. Now, the other financial implication, which you don't hear much about, at least I haven't, uh, news-wise, is uh, normally you think that uh, that attendance uh, to these games is somewhat of the revenue picture, and now there's going to be nobody attending these games. How big a hit is that? 
Well, with television money coming in, and it's not even just the national package with Fox and with ESPN, but it's especially the local deals, your local television where you see Cubs right. and White Sox games on those channels. And, and that's, you know, we're not just talking about over the air, but the cable package and all that. Right. That's where the money comes in. Right. And I would so figure as long as, as long as that's there, then that is going to drive the engine. Now, it is a significant hit that you can't open the gates and sell tickets and beer and popcorn and shirts and pennants and all that stuff. That's part of what the argument was about over the months that preceded this actual attempt to start the 2020 season. Uh, That's not insignificant, but the fact that the television money is there, and especially local television money, that's going to be big. And it's especially going to be big for teams that are in bigger markets like Chicago, New York, Los Angeles. These markets... These teams are going to be able to be in better financial position because their contracts are that much bigger than those in places you know, like Milwaukee sure. and Kansas City. Sure. And with that, you can expect the rich to get richer. But that's never changed in baseball. That's going back time in memoriam, going back to even you know the Black Sox days. The rich always got richer. And that's how it's going to go, especially this year. That, that TV money is going to mean an awful lot. I would assume that TV money just got bigger on the local level from the standpoint of local markets that had blackouts when games were local. I assume now every one of these games is going to be covered. <laughs> you would assume that. Yeah. Major League Baseball saying no, these blackout rules are staying. No. Now if you no. Yeah. Tell me even, what, what logic, uh, other than maybe the television station isn't on board, but what possible logic could there be in blacking out a local game when the fans can't go? It's the same question I have here in Las Vegas because we're blacked out of, uh, although I think that's changing this year finally, we've been blacked out of Los Angeles Dodgers games because the Dodgers claim Las Vegas is a local market. So too did San Francisco, Oakland, San Diego, the Angels, the Arizona Diamondbacks, and the Colorado Rockies all claim Las Vegas as a local market. Now, fortunately, most of the teams have allowed their telecasts to come into Las Vegas, but the Dodgers are an exception. So, if you've gone even to a sports book to watch a Dodgers game thinking, oh, you can go there and bet on the Dodgers. Well, you can bet on the Dodgers. You just can't watch the Dodgers. I think that changes actually. Uh, I think that actually changes this year uh, for reasons that have nothing to do with the pandemic. It's just the long television dispute that the Dodgers had with their local providers and whatnot. That's been resolved after I can't remember how many years now. Yeah, that, but those blackout rules are still in effect. It's the same. It's it's all about the protection of the brand and the franchise and the distribution thereof, Raleigh. Never mind that they're cutting off their nose to spite their face. That's what it's all about. Major, this is how dumb this is. The San Francisco Giants and Oakland Athletics claim Guam as local territory, <laughs> and therefore, if you are in Guam, you cannot see Giants at A's game. No. Just you know, there, there's a word for all that, and this word is insanity. This is just crazy. Uh, and, well, the word I was thinking of, you can't say. Well, that's now. right. That, <laughs> that, that's right. Yes, and you know, keep in mind that my first order of business anytime I'm on any radio station is protecting the license. So, no, 
don't even think about it. But <laughs> you're going to hang up on me. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, with uh, with that in mind, we uh, you know actually I'm rarely, as you well know, at a loss for words. But the idea of protecting the brand, it would seem to me that the more exposure you got when the brand couldn't c- draw people to the stadium would be in your favor. I can't think of one argument against this. Think back to when radio first came along and broadcasts were being done of baseball games and then television subsequent to that. Go back and you see that there were blackouts of radio broadcasts for fear that people would listen to the games and not come to the ballpark. The same thing continues to happen with television. Yes. Yes. Well, wouldn't you think that the television, the the telecast of a baseball game is a wonderful three and a half hour infomercial for that team? It's been proven, but still there are those who have their feet dug in to say, no, as long as we televise these games. Folks aren't going to come to the ballpark. Right, there's a certain degree of that. But then you get the money back and the rights fees you get for televising the games. Right. I understand that argument, and I could see both sides. But now we're talking about people can't go to the games. You know, this is the this is the big element in this. People cannot go. And 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 yes, of course, the blackouts. You know, the the old Scotsman Gordon McClendon started that way, recreating it by hanging a bat from the ceiling. So uh, there there was all that kind of radio play by. Liberty Network. Yeah. Yes, that's right. The Liberty Network. You betcha. And uh, you know, but again, I uh, I need to regroup here. I can't I can't begin to think of the logic. Okay, fans cannot go to the games, but it's not in our interest to televise them. Let me think about that a moment. I'm talking to Ron Flatter. I'm Raleigh James, and this is WGN Radio. We've changed sports a little there. Backfield emotion. Mel and Tim from 1969 on Bamboo. That was Cousins Mel Harden and Tim McPherson. Number three, R&B. Got to top ten pop. They wrote it. They've been writing together since childhood in Mississippi, and then they relocated to St. Louis and ultimately Chicago. Gene Chandler found them and co-produced and produced Backfield Emotion at, at Universal. That's where they recorded it. They put it out on Bamboo. And... Uh, the follow-up to uh, Good Guys Always Win in the Movies was uh, number 17 R&B and 45 Pop. And uh, then they wound up in the top top five R&B again, but on stacks a couple of years later. But in 1969 in Chicago, it was definitely backfield in motion. So we're talking with Ron Flatter, who is uh, really, well, these days on, on VSIN, which is uh, a sporting, ne- bet, actually a betting network, but whether it's ESPN or Fox or CBS or you name it, he's, uh, he's been there. Tell me a little about VSIN, Ron. VSIN has been branded as like the CNBC or Bloomberg of sports betting. So it's not a place you're going and you're not going to have some greasy tout come on and go, call this 900 number and I'll give you the five picks that are going to win for you tonight for ninety nine ninety nine. Not that. This is reporting on gambling trends, on everything from games when they are actually in progress 
to the passage of legal sports gambling in states across the union. We cover sports gambling news. On a night-by-night basis, when there is sports, we're doing things like telling you which way people are betting on games so that you can get an idea of which way the popular opinion is going, which way the money is going, which is actually different than popular opinion. That could suggest which way professional gamblers are betting on games. And we try to explain all that and walk everyone through the process that leads these numbers to changing the point spreads and the money lines and the over-unders and all of those things. So that's what we are. I mean, we're just about at the point where we should be running a ticker at the bottom of the screen showing the ups and downs on these things because in a lot of ways, sports gambling is like the stock market. And people do treat these things often with the same gusto. So that's what we've been doing for a little more than three years. We've downsized because of the coronavirus because nobody's really playing games. (laughs) <laughs> right. It's been the reality, but once we're back up and running, we're going to, with uh, seeing the baseball and the basketball and the hockey, and please, please, Lord, let there be football, then we're going to be back up at full speed. Now, if I, uh, I want to listen, how do I do that? Uh, Sirius XM Channel 204 is one way. You could be a subscriber, and right now, because there's no sports going on, we don't feel the, you know, the compunction to charge anybody, so you can subscribe for free right now. Once one of the major sports gets back up and running, presumably baseball, then we're going to give you another week of grace period, then we're going to start charging you the subscription fee again. Okay. But you can subscribe by going to vsin.com. Vegas Stats and Information Network, or think of Vegas as Sin City, vsin.com. Perfect. And that's where you can get it as well. Perfect. All right, yes, the NFL, uh, backfield in motion is about a good lead into that as anything, but I agree with you. Football is gone. Well, life as we know it, sports-wise, uh, ceases to be. And, of course, I hear through the rumor mill that uh, college football is already into rubble. What's going on? Yeah, I think I think it's going to be a goner. The Big Ten certainly has been right there leading the way. You know, you could say, all right, the Ivy League has already canceled all its fall sports. And the Ivy League was the first to cancel sports en masse amongst colleges when it called off its basketball tournament right around the time that everything was getting locked down in March. And so they were the canary in the coal mine in a lot of ways, and they are again this time around. You know, it's the old thing. Maybe the guys with the brains are the ones that are the guys and gals with the brains part. They should be leading us. And uh, so that has been the case. The Big Ten was out front saying, we're not going to play games outside the conference. Non-conference games will not happen. So that Wisconsin-Notre Dame game at Lambeau Field in October, that's been called off. Mm. Uh, the Michigan-Notre Dame game that we used to happen every year, if that were on the schedule, called off, etc. The Pac-12 has followed suit. So Notre Dame-USC called off. You're thinking, well, Notre Dame's not even in a league. What If everybody goes to conference games only, what does Notre Dame do? Notre Dame has, is in a league, but not for football. That's the Atlantic Coast Conference. And so the ACC has said that it will have Notre Dame's back and that games between Notre Dame and its members, many of which are on the Notre Dame schedule, will be honored as long as there's a season. But that's the well. big if, because you can't even get students back in school. What's the point of playing football? There is that side notion in the Southeastern Conference, you know, the Alabamas and LSUs and Auburns of the world. Will they go ahead and play because football is even bigger there than school? Right. Well, yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, I could just envision a situation where if the NCAA said, we're going to call off all fall sports in 2020, that the next day the SEC would be in court seeking a restraining order. So 
I think college football, though, is on the ropes for 2020. I can't see a way forward that they're going to be able to do this, particularly at a time when the idea that these amateur athletes are making money for everybody involved with the college except themselves, Mm -hmm. and that there's a great deal of pushback on that, that this virtual indentured, uh, indentured servitude is going to be called with a penalty flag on the play and that they will go ahead and stop. And I can't see college football going forward in 2020. Much greater experts than I, uh, maybe the guy uh, who, Paul Feinbaum, who maybe is the most plugged-in voice of college football, especially in the SEC and ACC, he thinks it's a 25% chance at best that we have a college football season. I wonder what's going to happen to the scholarships if they don't. Of course, then again, I don't even know that there's going to be classes, so the whole thing is up in the air. But yeah, uh, yeah. but NFL-wise, if, if I had you put your Miss Cleo hat on and predict, are we going to have a football season? It'll start. I don't know that it'll finish. Ooh. It'll start. And I, I'm more worried that it'll start on time. They've already kicked the can down the road by canceling two of the four preseason games that every team plays. I would say that every team enjoys, but I don't know anybody who enjoys preseason football. <laughs> but that's been pushed down, and now there's the Players Association suggesting that they should cancel the preseason altogether. The reason it exists is a money grab by the teams, because right. they charge as much for a preseason game ticket as they do for a regular season game ticket. One of the great NFL scams that's been going on for decades. So if the preseason's done with, They'll start the regular season the Thursday after Labor Day, if it all goes on time, and we'll go forthwith. So that gives us a couple months. But these, you know, Raleigh, these months go by fast during this thing, and, and yeah. we see the bubble going on. And I think it's the same as baseball. In those areas, in those places where the coronavirus has been spiking, particularly in the southern U.S., oh, maybe man. those games have got to be moved out of there, and teams have got to be moved out of there. But it becomes more complicated with football because the teams and the support personnel are much greater numbers than they are for the other sports. And if you're going to start doing that, you're going to be moving armies around. Then uh, you're starting to concern those states where they would be moving with all the intrusion of all these folks for long periods of time, and how are you going to guarantee their safety, and how are you going to keep people in their bubbles, and all of that. But that's the challenge, and in part that's the challenge that all sports are facing. It's just would be in greater numbers for football. But because of the sheer amount of money involved with the NFL, and the desire to get the season going and everybody being stir-crazy, having been in home arrest for four months, I think they'll start the season. I'm just not sure they're going to finish it. Interesting. You know, as you're describing all that, I see an entire new category of betting, betting on whether the games will be played, not the outcome of them. This could be... Oh, sure, uh, you can uh, bet that. If, uh, can you really? Oh, God. Yeah, oh, you can bet anything offshore. Well, that, yeah, there is that. So, well, you know the Washington Redskins abandoned their nickname today, so oh. there's already betting on what the new nickname will be. Perfect. Just The Red perfect. Bills are three-to-one favorites. Oh, no. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh, dear. For the Red-Billed Hawks in the area, don't Yeah, you? well, of course, yes. Of course. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And we didn't even get into Arlington Park or what the MLB Network was doing regarding re-airing the 1984 Ryan Sandberg game. So that's a reason to have you back again. Will you do it? Okay. All right. And I'll try not to, you know, put your license in peril. Thank you. Thank you, Ron Flatter. Thanks for joining us.